0: All right, well, we're, we're in a, a sermon series here. We've been doing this for a few months, going through the Old Testament law. So, really covering the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. For several weeks, we were tackling some pretty difficult, even controversial topics that the, the Old Testament law brings up. Um, but just last week, we, we returned to the, the narrative of Exodus through Deuteronomy. And we jumped back into this this place in the middle of of the book of Numbers. And for a few weeks, we're going to look at at times where the Israelites, really, they they rebelled, they sinned against God's leadership. And we're going to look at another one of those today. Covered Numbers 16 and 17. So why don't you open up your Bibles to Numbers chapter 16. It's on page 124 in your house Bible. And we've got these, these two chapters to to summarize these, these events, we're not going to read every word, but I'm going to read quite quite a bit, and I'll paraphrase, paraphrase the rest. So let's start, number 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Ezar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? We're going to come back to that. That's going to be the key, key verse, key phrase in this chapter. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah, and all his company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You, You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi." Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to him, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And so, so just to understand who these people were, Korah and at least several of these people were Levites. Now the Levites had a special position. They were in charge of the, the, the ministry of the tabernacle. And they, they played a, a unique and special role in, in uh, leading the congregation into worship. And yet, although they had that un- unique high role, they didn't have the priesthood, not all of them. That, that was reserved for Aaron and his descendants. And so they, they wanted that. Let's drop down to verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. So God is ready to eliminate this people because they had done this over and over and over again. And they fell on their faces, Moses and Aaron did, and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. Okay, we're going to skip down again to verse 31. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250, offering the incense. Drop down again to verse 41. But on the next day all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and against Aaron saying you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment and they fell on their faces And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord and the plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Now, those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returns to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. And then in, in chapter 17, God invites 12 leaders of the 12 tribes to come forward with their staffs. And God causes Aaron's staff to bud, signifying that he and his line were chosen for the priesthood. But then let's finish it off with verses 12 and 13. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. Are we all to perish? And so it it finishes on a bit of a discouraging note. As these people, after just witnessing 15,000 of their countrymen die they are, are in despair because they're recognizing that God is, is holy and God is, is, is not to be trifled with. And we, of course, should, should recognize that as well, that God, in His holiness, sometimes punishes. Sometimes He punishes severely. And God is patient, and He endures with sin often for long periods of time, but, but there are times where his holiness, his righteousness demands a response. And we see that here, that he punishes severely. But we have to ask, what was the the sin here? That's what we want to dig into this morning, is what, what was the sin? What was going on? What was the attitude of Korah and his followers? And as I mentioned, I think it's captured here in Numbers 16, verse 3. This is when they came to Moses and Aaron, and they came with this accusation. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, this is a fascinating statement to me, and it's fascinating because it sounds so familiar. We hear this kind of thing all the time in our modern society. And sometimes we even speak it. And we do so because it, it resonates with us. And there's some, some truth here, actually, in what Korah and his followers say. It, it is true that the, the entire congregation was holy. There was no distinction. It was true that the Lord was among all of them. These things were, were all were, were true. And so they, they come with this, this, this attitude here and they, th- there's this desire to remove hierarchy. There's this desire to remove distinctions and to, to flatten out leadership structures and to remove roles of authority. And oftentimes that can resonate with us. Because we live in a society that I think is pretty naturally averse to authority, that we naturally resist or or, or reject authority. You know, it's in all of our our stories, or a lot of our modern beloved stories. Who are the who are the good guys in Star Wars? They're the rebels. Bad guys. they're, They're the Empire. And there's lots of stories, lots of movies like that, and we resonate with the, the little guy throwing off the chains of the big guy and pushing back on authority. And sometimes that is absolutely right, that's appropriate. You know, our country was founded on, on really a, a, a rejection of an unfair authority, and that was right. Right. It was right to rebel in that instance. But it wasn't right here with with Korah. There was something else going on here. And I think this passage sets us up for an important conversation on on authority. These guys were pushing back on, on the authority that they had been given, and God responds pretty severely. I think we need to understand okay, what, what was their attitude towards authority? How should we respond to authority? And, and what does that mean for, for our lives? And so we're going to have this conversation about authority, and I, I, I think we, we need it, and I hope it's, it's, it's helpful. So first we might ask, what is authority? Okay, what, what is authority? Well, we're going to define authority as we go along here this morning. And not only are we going to define authority, but we're going to try to define what a good authority looks like. Okay? And so that's what we're going to do just as we move through this morning. Um, but we're going to start out, I, I want to start out with a basic definition, and specifically to distinguish between power and authority. And I'm going to let uh, a man named Jonathan Lehman help us. Jonathan Lehman is just pastor and author, and he wrote a, a great book on authority called Authority. And, um, and he he uh, distinguishes between power and authority in this way. He says, power is the ability or capacity to do something. Authority is the moral right to make decisions with that power. Okay, so I can have power. If I am physically bigger than you, I can assert my power over you, physically dominate you, but I may not have the moral right to do that. Okay, the, I, I must be given a moral right to use power. And so when we're talking about a moral right, we're talking about, first of all, something that is given, and ultimately by God himself, that God creates these structures. God even creates certain institutions, and, and, and there are realms um, in which somebody may have authority. Okay? And so, so that right is granted, and then somebody can use their capacity, their strength, um, within that, that realm, because they have the right to do, to do it. But of course, um, we're not just talking about the, the right to assert power in some way, but, but we also want to understand how it's done well. What, it, what is good authority supposed to look like? And so what we're going to do for the rest of this morning is, is, is these three things. First, I want to describe the goodness of authority, okay, that authority is a, a, a good that God has given us. But then secondly, I also want to talk about the limits of authority. There certainly are limits that we need to understand, but I want to end with the trustworthiness of our ultimate authority. So first, let's talk about the goodness of authority. And again, I think we need to talk about this because since we are naturally averse to authority, we, we may be imbalanced here. We may have a a, a poor view of authority and we need to swing the pendulum back a little bit perhaps and see authority for what I think it was originally intended for and to see the goodness in it. So the first point I want to make here about the goodness of authority is that authority has always existed within God himself. Now God presents himself to us oftentimes as a king. So God, God is the king. That's one of the primary ways he communicates himself to us. God is king. God is Lord. And, um, and so he has ultimate authority. He is the ultimate sovereign. He does what he wills. And we are to submit to his will. He he's the authoritative one. But if we go deeper than that, I think we can also understand that not only is, does God um, use his authority with us, but that there is authority within God and there always has been. You know, as Christians, we believe in a triune God. God is three, and God is is one. And there's this mysterious reality there that, that God, we can say confidently, God is absolutely one. There is a strong oneness in God, and yet there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there are different persons within the Godhead. And because of that reality, there are characteristics of God that have always existed within him that are independent of the creation. So for example, community and relationship and love were ever present in God. God did not start loving when he created us. There was always love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, independent of the creation. That's why we can say God is love. It's just a part of his essence. Similarly, I believe that there is authority within the Godhead itself. And this also is confusing and mysterious, and there are different opinions on how this works, but I think we can confidently say that there is some sort of authority that exists and has always exist existed within the Godhead. Let me give you a couple of verses out of the book of John. Jesus says first John eight, twenty eight through twenty nine, so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Also, in John 16, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So we see these authority structures within God himself, and so authority is something that has existed within God forever, existed within our good God, and we can confidently say authority is good. It's a part of God's very essence. But let's let's fill that out a little bit and and try to see how God expresses his authority. And I want to do that by actually going all the way back to the beginning and to creation week in Genesis chapter 1. So you can turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. In your house Bible, it's on page 1. And we're going to read a few verses to start out with, and I'm going to paraphrase a bunch of this chapter. <clears throat> and I think, I think this, in, in God's creative work, we see some really interesting things about his, how his authority is expressed and how he structured the world. Verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So, God uses his authoritative voice to create, to bring new things into being. He just speaks. He has this authority. He speaks and things happen. This first day, he speaks and light comes into being. There's there's light. But not only so, there is also this contrast that he introduces. Okay, there's light and there's dark, there's day and there's night. So his first initial act, he he creates light, but he's also making this uh, complementing contrast and this distinction that he's beginning to work into the creation. And he does this with with each subsequent day. So day two, he creates this expanse, creates the heavens, and he separates the waters from the waters, whatever that means, he separates the waters from the waters. Again, he's creating this contrast. And then he goes on to, to uh, uh, day three, and he, he again separates the waters. He gathers them all into one place, and the dry land appears. And so he, he's making the, the, the land and the sea. Again, there's this contrast and this distinction. On the same day, he introduces vegetation, and plants begin to grow. They're all according to their own kinds, though. Okay, so he's making these distinct kinds. He's making categories, actually. He's giving contrast. He's, he's making complementary things. And then he goes on and he makes the lights hung in the heavens. And there's the, the sun and the moon along with the stars. And they govern the day and the night. They also govern, govern, govern the changing seasons. These seasons are going to be different. And they're, they're, there's a diversity that he's bringing into his creation. And then he goes on. In days five and six, and he makes the, the animals, and he makes the fish, and he makes the birds. And, and, and on day six, he makes the land animals. And again, they're all according to their own kinds. There, there, there are these categories, and there's this, this diversity that he's, he's uh, weaving into the creation. And then finally, he makes human beings. And he makes human beings, and, but again, he, he works this diversity even into humanity. He makes male and female he makes these distinctions. He's, he's, he's categorizing in some way. And then, after all of that, he's, he's, he's made everything. And he's introduced this diversity and this beauty throughout, day after day after day. And then he speaks to the people that he created. And here's what he says, says and it's kind of surprising, actually, to me. This isn't what I would have expected for him to to say. But in verse 28, this is what he speaks. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And what's interesting is that in God's initial creation, the first real act Acts he he, uh, he initiates with his people is this command, but it's a command that that shares authority. Okay, that's what he does first with with his people. He shares authority with them, and this this is wild to me because you wouldn't think he would do this. He's the authoritative one, and um, and he can do things pretty well, and yet he grants this authority over these finite, limited people. He says, here you go. And in this, I think we see, in this, just in this initial chapter in the Bible, we see some of the things that God uses his authority to do. So God used his authority, number one, to create, of course. He creates, he, he, he builds, he forms. This, this is just what he does. He, he, he makes things. Things that weren't, he brings into being. So he creates, of course, but then he he orders, he organizes. Okay, he's he's going to arrange things in all of their beauty and their diversity, and he's going to introduce categories, and he's going to order things. But then thirdly, and this is the unexpected one, that I, I again I that, that would surprise me. This is not what I would have, have guessed he would have have done, but he used his authority to, to delegate. He, he shares his authority with his, his people. So God, God's authority creates orders and, and delegates, and we get a little bit of a picture of how good authority operates. Now, we understand that we are, were made in God's image, and that we are to, to mimic him in much of, of what he does and who he is. And so we can also say, I believe, that as image bearers, we also use authority to create order and, and delegate. So we, we create, we build, and we build things in the material world, of course. We also build each other. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 says, it says that he was given authority by God to build you up, not to tear you down. Okay, So authority was was intended to, to build things and create, bring about good, strengthen. And we are to use authority to do that. And we are to order things. We are to organize things. We, we are to put things where they should go and to bring about this this ordered beauty. But then we are to delegate and we are to really to, to empower. So if I have authority over somebody, I am trying to authorize them. I'm trying to build their agency as well, which is really interesting. That I'm, I'm, I'm giving them more capacity. You know, we, we think of authority as this, this zero-sum game where if I have more authority, you have less authority. But I don't think that's how it works. We didn't see that in Genesis 1. I think if I have authority, I build your authority. And there's so many limits to that, there's still probably a, a realm or a jurisdiction that you, are, you will be responsible for. But if I have authority over you, I, I want you to grow in your authority within that realm. And for you to be more and more enabled. And, and this is how God wanted to set things up, I think, because it reflects who he is. And he wanted authority to function in this really good and powerful way where things were being created and things were being brought. And there was this give and take and there was this this authority over and there was this submission to and, and it, it it functioned in, in this sweet synergy. And, and this was to happen with every generation and authority was to be granted and, and, and people were to use that authority to build and then they were to pass it on and they, they, they were to build others and, and authority was granted and it was always to be happening. Again, this give and take, this, this authority over and this submission to. And when we see that and when we see the beauty of it, we can highly value authority and we can highly value even submission because that's part of it. Okay, that we don't just flatten everything out like Korah did, that he wanted to, but we can say there is a, a, an amazing and beautiful dance in how, how authority um, empowers, how authority builds. And when we submit to that authority, we are, are part of the picture that is, is mimicking God, and it's beautiful. So I do believe that as Christians, we are to have a high view of authority, Okay, we, we, our, our default should not be resistance of authority. I think it should be submission to authority. We, we want to highly respect authority because it's so much of, of how God designed the world and it reflects Him. That said, when, when giving a message like this and um, uh, promoting authority, which is what I 'm doing today, because I think we need it, again. Uh, As people in our modern American society, we naturally resist authority, and I think we need to move the needle a little bit and and grow in our respect for authority. And so I want want us to grow in that direction. However, when promoting authority, the fear is enabling abuse of authority. Enabling abuse of authority, because certainly it's out there. And many of us have been hurt Significantly by bad authority. If you've been hurt by a a father or a mother or a husband or an employer or a pastor, you have experienced significant pain. And there's something unique about it. Again, authority was meant to build and to create and to authorize, you were to be brought up by your authority. And when that doesn't happen, it is extremely painful and rattling and confusing and leaves a wound. And so many of us have experienced that and maybe even are experiencing it now. And I think sometimes Christians um, can, can choose to stay in, in really bad situations because there's this 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 feeling of a need to submit to authority and that's that's not always the the appropriate tact and so with that said i would like to discuss the limits of authority limits of human authority so we should. Our default should be respect of respect for authority. We probably need to grow in that direction, but we also need to understand the limits of, of, of human authority, and what are where, where are some of the lines that we don't cross where we may not submit to a human authority. Okay, I want to give you three. Okay, three limits. We may not submit to an authority if if an authority is leading us directly into sin. Of course, that's pretty straightforward. And I think this was the case with the Hebrew midwives at the beginning of Exodus. We, we read about that several months ago. Okay, so the, the, the civil authority was commanding the Hebrew midwives to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. But of course, they refused. They, they didn't do that. They did not submit in that way to the civil authorities. And so, of course, there's, the, there's that example that we, we can take and, and 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 understand that there is is a, a time where we do not follow an authority into sin. Secondly, we may not submit if an authority is significantly hindering us from following God's command. This was the case in the early chapters of Acts, when the apostles were told, again by their authorities, do not preach any longer in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, should we obey you or should we obey God? they chose God. So that was an example where people were trying to significantly hinder um, the the command that they had from God. And so they, they did not submit. And then number three, we may not submit if an authority is wrongly harming us. And I think Paul was appealing to this in Acts chapter 16, when he had been wrongly beaten. And then he calls out the authorities. And he says, no, there's, there's actually a higher authority over you. There's this law over you that says you cannot beat me as a Roman citizen. And so you have to answer to that. And he pushed on it. And I think it was just appealing to this, this reality that, that um, just because somebody's in a position of authority does not mean they can misuse that authority for harm. There, there are, there's higher authorities over, that, over them. And so we can understand that there are limits to, to human authority. However, as I put those three you know, pretty, pretty simple statements up there on the screen, um, we should also recognize that there, there is some, some gray in here. It gets a little fuzzy with each of those. Um, you know, when, when authority is, is sinning and potentially influencing us towards sin, um, we, we don't want to go there, but, you know, every authority is sinful. And... Um, Authority, an authority may be hindering us from following God's commands. So, so they, they may be putting some sort of a, a speed bump in the way. But again, that's going to happen a lot. You know, if I say, say I'm coming to, to church here in order to do God's will and to speak his truth, but say hypothetically all the roads in Fort Collins are under construction or something like that. And, and so it's hindering me. From carrying out God's commands, um, do I have the right to just blow through the road closed sign? We'll, we'll, I heard a yes, but the answer is no, no. So there's there there is a it's it's when there's a significant hindrance. I'm, I'm saying so so the hindrance gets to a certain level, or if an authority is wronging or harm, harming me, well again. All authorities harm in some way. Okay, I will hurt my children in some way. I'm going to make, make mistakes. And so there's some harm. And so does that mean that they, they throw off my authority? Well, not necessarily. Okay, so there's this, this line, and the, the line can be elusive. It's hard. It's confusing. But I do just want to say that there is a line. And so for those of us in, in situations that are really, really hard, I just want to say that you are not necessarily stuck there. But it is confusing and so the encouragement is to to appeal to others outside of that situation and and have them help you see are we crossing that line? Okay, is 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 are we at a point where we need to to turn from this authority. But like I said it is confusing. It it, it is hard. We, We are living in a world where we should submit to authority. We should highly value authority. And yet all of our authorities are broken and sinful. And so it's a struggle and it is always going to be confusing. But the great hope that we have is that we do have an ultimate authority over all of those authorities. And he's good and he's trustworthy. And when we recognize that, I believe that we can operate under those human authorities in a much more freeing way. Okay, with, with a peace and with a joy. It's like my, my first real job when I was sixteen was I was worked worked at Walmart. I was a courtesy clerk. I pushed in carts and I cleaned up wet spills and all that kind of thing. And there was there was a group of us who were courtesy clerks and and there was one who was older. Um, who was kind of kind of above us? He was the the ringleader, and he he was older, but he was still in this job that all the sixteen year olds were working, and so he was kind of grumpy about it. He was not a very good leader; There's not a very good authority there. But one of our managers was above him, and um, and he I, I think he liked me, and I could speak freely with him, and I could could um be under his leadership. And you know, when, when I recognized that there was this higher trustworthy leader and authority in my life, then it was much easier to respond to, to the, the authority that was just above me. And so, of course, we need to look to our ultimate authority. And I want to talk about his trustworthiness as we close And I want to mention one more quality of good authority. We mentioned that that authority creates and it orders and and it delegates and it passes on. But one more quality is that it it intercedes. Good authority intercedes. It gets in the way. It it sacrifices for those under its authority. And we see this in today's passage. We see an amazing authority in Moses and in Aaron, because they intercede for the people and they do it twice. And let's read each one of those. Verses 20 through 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And will you be angry with all the congregation? They pled for these people, even though these people had just rejected them people didn't deserve this. It would have been very easy to say, God, go right ahead. Eliminate these people. But they pled for them. And then a little later, again, after Korah and his followers had been killed, the the entire congregation is still grumbling. And Moses said to Aaron, so God is going to kill them again. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague stopped." This is is an amazing example. It's an amazing example of good leadership because they were willing to plead for the people they were leading and stand in between them and harm. And it wasn't just that that God was being being wishy-washy and he was easily manipulated by people. No, God was in control of this whole situation and I think God wanted to proclaim something about himself. And specifically, he wanted to proclaim that he... Um, was was willing to honor the intercession of an authority. He was willing to honor the intercession of, a, of an authority. He, he he was willing to to look at Moses and Aaron and and um and relent due to their plea. And you can just imagine Aaron running out there. The the plague has started. God's wrath is sweeping across the people. And Aaron runs out in the middle of them with his staff. And he stands in between the living and the dead. And God honors that and stops right there. And of course, God's intention was to foreshadow Jesus. He's foreshadowing Jesus here. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, God, so Christ did what Aaron did, really. But of course, he had greater authority so he could do it for, for, in a much greater way. He stood between God's wrath, his, God's justified wrath, and us. And we deserve to be swept over by that wrath. Okay, we had rebelled just like the Israelites over and over and over. Despite all they had seen, they continued to rebel and we do the same thing. And we deserve to be swept away by God's wrath and to die. But Jesus ran out into the middle in order to take all that wrath upon himself and to die in our place. He died for those who were rebelling against him. I think just like Moses and Aaron were willing to do. He died for those who were rebelling against him. And because of that, we can trust this authority. We can trust our ultimate authority, and we can follow him wholeheartedly. He deserves our absolute allegiance. We can call him Lord, and we can believe that his words are good, and that if we follow them, he will lead us to good. Band, you can go ahead and come on back up. I'd like to to end with this passage out of Philippians two five through eleven. in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have this amazing authority, this king, who is willing to stand in between God's wrath and us and take that upon himself. He emptied himself, and because of that, his father exalted him to the highest place so that we can serve and obey and worship him forever.